I want to bring us to the question that Jesus asked. And the question for today is the one he asked in John 21 when he said to Peter, What is that to you? What is that to you? You follow me. I think uh, as we turn to John 21 to read from verse 18, it's good to remind ourselves that this follows hard on the heels of uh, the disciples who'd gone fishing uh, on, the, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee, uh, being invited by Jesus to have breakfast with him. And uh, they enjoy that breakfast, and uh, then there's that poignant moment when uh, Jesus reinstates Peter after he had, he had denied the Lord three times, uh, and Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. What a reinstatement. Uh, the, the scene moves on as Peter and Jesus then begin to walk along the beach. Jesus invited him to go for a walk. Follow me, he'd said. And they they walking along the beach. And John, the other disciple, is following them. Uh, he loved Jesus and Jesus loved him. And uh, I don't know what he was thinking when he followed Peter and Jesus. Maybe he was curious. Or maybe it was just him thinking, I don't want to be too far from my Lord. I want to stay with him. But... This is what happens as they're walking along the beach. Jesus turns to Peter and he says this, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show, by, to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this to Peter, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, following them the one who had also leaned back against Jesus during the supper and had said, Lord, what is it that is going? Who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I return, and here's the question, what is that to you? You follow me. Interesting. You would think that, uh, you know, Peter would have enough on his mind uh, after what has just been happening and what Jesus has just said to him. You'd think that he'd be, you know, mulling over in his mind his own situation, what, what Jesus had said about his, his present and about his future. Jesus had just told him, 
I want you to go and feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, regardless of what happened before my crucifixion when you denied me, I trust you. I reinstate you. And I want you to go and feed my sheep. And the second thing, we told Peter what type of death he was going to die. And yet, here's Peter, preoccupied with another disciple. Jesus had just told Peter how he would die, that presumably, and, and it, it would seem traditionally, he died by crucifixion. And Peter, seeing John following them, you know, I mean, if somebody told me, Paul, you, you're going to die like that. I mean, what, would I be bothered with who was walking along behind us? But if Peter, what a guy. I mean, here he is, he's so wrapped up in, in, in John that he asks Jesus this question, what about this man? Maybe he wanted to know if John also was going to die for the gospel. You know, would he and John be martyrs together? Or was he, Peter, the only one who was going to get the raw deal? Fascinating insights that, you know, we can allow our minds to, to, to chase after as we look at that scripture. Peter was wondering how it would go with John. And so he asked Jesus, what about this man? And Jesus responds, uh, I suppose if we would put it in, in modern terms, Jesus says to him rather bluntly, he says, none of your business, Peter. You follow me. You follow me. God's will for John was between God and John. God's will for Peter was between Peter and God. And God's will for any one of you is between God and you. And so I find a very powerful lesson there, right, right in that, that moment of time when, when Jesus answers Peter in that way. And that lesson for you and for me this morning is, dear ones, get on with your own calling and with the ministry to which God has called you. Now, I, I use that word ministry, and unfortunately it's been so overused in the context of people who are full-time and get paid for what they do and who stand behind a pulpit. Uh, no, that, that's the wrong concept. Ministry is what you were born to do for the kingdom of God. What, what God has has wired you for, hardwired you for. That is what you were born for. That is your ministry. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? 
And I find in that a hint that Jesus doesn't particularly like it or he doesn't think it's so, so uh, much wisdom when, when we begin to focus on somebody else's life and work to the extent that our own calling, our own life and work suffers. The minute we we focus on someone else at the expense of our own standing with God and the own gifting that we've received from God, Jesus is letting us know, look, mate, get back in line. Just just readjust your gaze and and begin to look at at what you are equipped for and, and gifted for and where you need to be going. Just get that sorted out. To focus on another's life and work has the effect of weakening the focus of your own calling. And that's what Jesus wants us to avoid. Can we find encouragement in that? I think there's great encouragement because it releases us from the the crippling bondage of comparisons. Lethal comparisons. Book after book, conference after conference, DVD after DVD, telling us how to succeed in our Christian walk and in our ministry, and that's good. That's good. And all of them are quietly delivering a message that, um, well, we're not quite making it. We should be doing better. And maybe we should. Worship could be better. Children's work could be better. Pastoral care could be better. Missions could be better. Youth ministry could be better. And on and on and on goes the list. And then, we must not forget... We're told, here's how you can do it better. Visit the bookstore. Buy the DVD. Enroll for this course. Do it this way or do it that way. And those things are good. Don't misunderstand me. But when we think that that is the key to making the difference for us, we will have missed the point. The key is for us to put our eyes on Jesus. Lord, I will follow you. I will not allow myself to be caught up in what you have ordained for him or for her, for my spouse, for my my parents or or even my children or or whatever. My, My focus, Lord... At the end of the day, what I must fix my gaze upon is what you have called me to do and give the best part of my time and my energy and my resources to that. Peter had just heard a very hard word. Been told you're going to die and it's going to be painful. And so his first thought was comparison. 
What about John? I have to suffer. Will he have to suffer too, Lord? If my ministry ends like like you've just told me, uh, what's his ministry going to end like? If I don't get to live out a long, fruitful life of ministry, will he have the privilege of doing that? That's the way we humans are wired. Compare, liken to, measure against. We crave to know how we stack up in comparison to others. It's part of the fallen nature. It's, there's, there's, I'd go as far as to say there's even a strange kind, there's a sort of uh, twisted satisfaction when we can find out that someone is less effective than we are. Ouch. What is that to you? Follow me. What is it to you that David Hogan and his team have raised 500 people from the dead in Mexico? He travels around the world and he admits that raising the dead is one of their least successful miracles that they see, especially that they have prayed for anything from five to 6,000 dead people. Only 500 raised from the dead. I've prayed for three dead people. None of them were raised from the dead. What is that to you? What is it to you that Lance Wallnau inspires visions of tomorrow with the clarity of today, bringing ideas and putting them into action? That he, Dr. Wallnau, explains and teaches how we can capture a nation and conquer a nation by moving Christ into the seven mountains of their culture, so to speak, science, education, arts, uh, you know, that sort of thing. What is that to you? What is it to you that Reinhard Bonnke has been evangelizing Africa since 1967, started in Lesotho in a small way, and just grew until his vision of saving Africa from Cape to Cairo was was almost fulfilled. What is it to you that he has recorded 75 million conversions for Christ? What is that to you? You follow me. Jesus says. What is it to you that Don Carson, a Canadian theologian and professor of the New Testament, has, reads 500 books a year? You can do the math on that. And then is able to, with amazing precision, precision and clarity, bring pastoral insight into an extraordinary fulfillment. You follow me, 
Jesus says. What is it to us this morning that the Chinese youth are going for Jesus big time? And this despite the more recent outbreak against places of worship and buildings of, uh, uh, built for the, that purpose being destroyed by the authorities. That there is such a, a, a massive sweeping of young Chinese lives into the kingdom of God that experts reckon that by the year 20,000 there will be 250 million Chinese Christians in that nation. Making China, making their Christian population the biggest in the world. And by the way, despite what is happening there now, they're still the biggest producer of Bibles in the world. What is that to you? Follow me, says Jesus. Here's a key. Jesus will not judge us according to our superiority or our inferiority over anybody else. Hear me now. All these remarkable achievements are not the standard we are to aim for. Here's what we need to go for. Jesus has a unique work for me to do and a different one that is also unique for you to do. I've just, just come to mind in, as, as I speak now that, that I, I remember telling you when we were a much smaller group and a good many years ago of, of a, a lady I knew in, in Zimbabwe during the Bush War. And she would write little postcards and little notes to the soldiers. Uh, she didn't know them, but she managed to get their names and their numbers from uh, uh, um, HQ or wherever she got it from, but she wrote to them. And the testimony that has come back since those hundreds of little notes that she wrote, notes of encouragement, notes of, of, of telling them to keep their eyes on Jesus, the testimonies that have come back in, in, uh, as a result from those, those years of the war we were in, of, of the help it was, the encouragement was, and, and even some turning to Jesus and beginning to follow him. That was Annette's ministry. It doesn't look like much writing a card out for someone. But when we do that, we're, doing, we're being the hand of God reaching out to somebody else. You follow me. So Jesus has a unique work for us. And it's not the work that he's given anyone else to do either. And because it's us and because he's God, he gives us a particular grace to do it. Your makeup, 
your personality, your background, your social standing, everything that comes together to make you, makes you, you uniquely to do the work that Jesus has called you to do. The question is, will I trust him for that grace and will I do what he has given me to do? Three simple applications. The first one, I am responsible for my actions. Everyone here today is responsible for their own actions. Will you note that in that that verse, two times, Jesus uses the word you. He says, what is that to you? You follow me. The word you is emphatic. It is forceful. Jesus is telling Peter and he's telling us today to get on with what God has told us to do. You know, for me, after a morning service, one of the most important ministries is the cup of coffee that I'm handed through the serving hatch next door. I don't know why I'm going back to that again. I I think I'm trying to make the point. Don't compare with these, these amazing other ministries that make the headlines. You are called to this place at this time to do this particular job to the best of your ability. And if you do it, you'll be helping the kingdom. I'm responsible for my actions. Secondly, I'm responsible for my God-given gifting. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And he also said, follow me. Do you understand that Peter, Jesus would not tell Peter to feed his sheep if he would not equip him to do it? How does that saying go? The grace of God will never lead you where the... Or the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Whatever you call to, God is the, wi- the wind under your wings. God will enable you to do it and for it to make a difference as a result in a hurting world. We are responsible for our gifting. He enables us to use that talent, to use that gifting in a remarkable way. I can, I, one of my favorite animals is the, the African impala. And my uh, growing up years, most of our family were on farms and that, so I, I spent a lot of time in the bush. And uh, one of the most graceful sights and the most exciting sights you can possibly see is to see a herd of impala uh, in full, full flight. 
and and it's it's amazing. They have legs like matchsticks, but they can they can jump over a bush ten feet high from a standstill. They can when when they're galloping like that, and they 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 jump to to clear a hurdle. They cover thirty feet. Remarkable, beautiful animals. Yet when they are captured and they're brought into an enclosure, they can be put in a pen that has walls that are four feet high and by, by just slightly indenting their space on the inside of those walls, they'll keep them in that enclosure although they could clear it just standing still. And the reason for that is that the impala will not jump where he can't see where he's going to land. They imprison themselves because they do not exercise faith for the gifting that they've been given. Now you know where I'm going. Too many believers are like that impala. Through lack of faith, they do not discover, or if they know what it is, they do not use their calling, their gifting. My friends, please remember that you've been called by God to do one thing well, and maybe a few things less well. But by faith, we have been given that task to do. Because God is involved, we can do it well. It is painful to hear a Christian say, I don't think I'm doing a very good job at this. Because God comes with that word that we use, grace. Who can define grace? Who can plummet its depths? Who can reach its heights? Who can embrace its circumference? Grace is beyond explanation. It is beyond even the ability of a fabulous mind to grasp. And God pours in grace. And we heard, we heard jazz talking about the grace given to her making a pie and sending it to her neighbor. And she exercised that grace for months. Maybe it was even years, I can't remember, before that lady came to the Lord. But the challenge is for us to do what we can do whenever we can to the best of our ability. There's a quote, and I wish I knew who, who, who spoke it, I don't know, but it says, too many people make cemeteries of their lives by burying their gifting. The third application is simply this. What is that to you? that does not destroy the idea of Christian accountability. Jesus was not saying that we are not accountable for others or that we shouldn't care for others within the body of Christ. Jesus was not 
negating the nature and the purpose of the church to love, to care, to encourage, to correct. Jesus was not endorsing isolation or individualism. But Jesus was saying that some things concerning believers are God's care and concern alone and not everyone's concern, especially if it leads to them losing the focus on their own calling. I conclude. The call to follow me is a call worth dying for because Jesus is the only king worth living for. You see, it's a total commitment. It's the expression of agape love, sacrificial love, willing to lay down our lives one for the other. And Jesus is worth dying for because he's the only giver of life. My friends, I hope you have found some encouragement and freedom today when you hear Jesus say to all our fretting comparisons, what is that to you? You follow me. I'm not a prophet. But sometimes God stirs things in my heart and I know that I know I've heard the Lord. It was like that in the nation I was born into. God showed me things. I spoke it out sometimes in ministers' prayers and I could tell from the look on their faces they thought I needed help. Today, looking back, uh, I think Jesus got it right. I feel concerning the church, not this church, but the church, that we're on the threshold of seeing God do something extraordinary. But it's going to be coupled with an extreme testing in the natural. It's going to challenge the courage that we believe we have to stand for the Lord and for his truth and for righteousness. Hear me, I prophesy this to you. You are going to be challenged to the depth of your being as you purpose to take that stand. It's not going to happen overnight. It's a gradual erosion of a mindset that is coming upon people in general. 
Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is it in chapter 4, I believe, speaks about the God of this world has blinded the minds of individuals that they do not see the light or the truth of the gospel, the good news. And there, 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 is, there is a blinding that is beginning to take place. You can, you can pick it up from the words and the stances of people in high places. And I don't, I don't know if things are going to get easier for us, but I do know they're going to get more glorious for us. There's going to be a price, but there's also going to be a massive harvest and reward for those who will take their stand. But I'm waiting expectantly for that something special from God to kick off any day now. God is going to empower his people those who are willing in the day of his power, willing to pay the price, are going to see extraordinary things. And if what I say is correct, then all the more we're going to have to remember this. What is that to you? You Follow me. Let's stand. This is a moment when, when it's you and God and he knows your heart. He knows what your, your desires are. You know, those desires are not things that you think are good ideas. They are desires that he's put in your heart. When the scripture speaks about he gives us the desires of our hearts, it's not the good things that we would like. It's the desires he's put in our heart. Because some of the stuff we like is just not of God. But he's going to come. And he's going to put his stamp of approval on those godly righteous desires of our hearts. And I pray that part of those desires is to be somebody who's going to make a difference for him. And so if that, if that is you, as we pray now, will you, will you just reach out for him? You can raise a hand physically if you like, or you can just let your heart reach upwards and grab, grab hold of Jesus. And Lord, you challenge us this morning to keep our eyes on you, to be single-minded, single-focused. What is that to you? What is it to us that there's so much happening around us? There's so much that others are claiming and, and being applauded for. But you, we hear your voice this morning. What is that to you? And he calls your name. And he says to you, follow me. 
And so we extend our hearts and hands and minds to you this morning. And we say, here we are. Take us and lead us on where your grace is going to envelop us and keep us. And we bless you for it in the name of our Savior. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll do something special for these people. I pray that even now, you'd come with with an emotion, you'll come with a sensation, you'll come with an anointing. And you'll touch them, I pray. They'll never, ever be the same again. In Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.